your copy of God's Word and turn to Paul's letter to Timothy, the first letter, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to read the first seven verses of the chapter, zeroing in primarily on verse 5, which highlights the, the topical theme of Christ's mediatorial office. But I want to read the first seven verses just to keep that fifth verse in tension with that which Paul is instructing us here. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, reading through verse 7. This is the word of the living God. Let's give attention to it. 1 Timothy 2, beginning with verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Let's pause and ask for his help as we consider this very important subject of Christ as mediator. Let's pray. Father, as we now look into your word, that life-giving word, and we consider the living word, your son, as our mediator, may we see something of his glory May you overcome the weakness of the flesh this morning, and may we see our Savior as he is, as presented by the infallible truth, the inerrant truth of this, your word, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Most of you know, and if you've been here for any length of time, you know that I am an avid baseball fan. I look forward to opening day every winter. I begin to count down the days until spring training. But what you probably don't know, or maybe have never really considered, especially if you're not a sports fan, which I realize some of you are not, but what you might not know is that most players, most if not all players, have an agent. What does this agent do? Well, he he speaks for the player and negotiates on their behalf. They have been given that power by the player himself. Though they are not the player, they speak for him and labor to serve him for their good and their benefit. And that is exactly what we see when we consider the mediatorial office of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he didn't come as mediator, and our confession of faith has an entire chapter devoted to this because it is really an umbrella theme, as I'm going to show you in a moment. But he didn't just come merely because he had to for himself. Indeed, he did not at all. He had to come to mediate, to be our agent, if you will, before his father. But he didn't just do that in past time. But he is still today, this moment, he is mediating for you. 
He's doing that for me this very moment. There isn't a moment in which he is not laboring before his Father for your good and well-being. And as you think about Christ as mediator, it is not unusual for you to think about his work on the cross. Of course, that's part and parcel of what this mediator did. In doing that, he secured for you that hope of redemption. He secured what? Peace between two parties. One party being absolutely in the right, the offended party. And you, the offender, he secured peace for you to our Father in heaven. But do you also understand, as you think about Christ in this context, do you understand that this mediatorial work, this, this, this office of a mediator, is not just one time? It is something that he does regularly, daily for you in many different ways in which I hope to show you throughout this particular sermon. The God-man, the Lord Jesus, and all of his glory is still mediating on behalf of the people he came to save. Now here in this context, at least the, the fifth verse of chapter 2 of First Timothy, Paul, Paul's giving instructions to Timothy, a pastor, an evangelist, a, a one who was left to run the church and, and, and guide her. He's giving instructions at many different things. And one of the things that he picks up there in that second chapter is this zeal that God our Savior desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he says, how? It happens through this one mediator, this one person identified clearly, and as you know, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to show you this morning the glory of Christ as we've been considering, or at least I've been trying to show you throughout this topical series. I want to show you the glory of Christ as the only mediator between God and men, the only one who can reconcile you to a holy God and Father, and the only one who continues to do just that today. I know it's a lengthy proposition, but it's in the bulletin. You don't have to try to write it down, but I want to show you, with God's help this morning, the glory of Christ as the only mediator between God and men, the only one who can reconcile you to a holy God and Father, and the only one who continues to do so today. Two points, and it's hard in, in, in an oral or verbal oral expression to convey what I'm trying to convey in the two points, but... I'll do the best I can. First, we're going to consider what is a mediator. And then we will look at the question, the second question in the outline, what is or who is the mediator? In your bulletin, those words are uh, uh, italicized to drive forward the point that there is only one true mediator between God, the Father, and sinners. Let's first consider this question that we have before us, a question that, children, you may wonder, what, what, what exactly is a mediator? It's not a word that we use very often, I don't think. It may shock you to know that the word itself is not used all that often in the Bible. 
I think it's seven times in the Greek, even going to the Septuagint, it's used seven times in the entire canon of the Bible. You would think by virtue of that statement that it means it's not all that significant a point, but indeed it is a point, an extremely important point for us to think about. Because not only is the word, although seven times used, the expression of it is typified all over the place. I'm going to show you that in a minute. So what is, what is a mediator? Children, if you were to at, answer me that question, if you were to tell me, you know, what, what is a mediator? Maybe, maybe you think like this. You might think, well, sometimes mommy mediates or speaks on my behalf to daddy. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe sometimes daddy speaks on behalf of the child to the mom for whatever reason. That's a type of mediator. A, fault, a, a fallible one, of course, but still mediating for your interests. For you adults, we might consider a, a mediator to be some office, some, some role, position, maybe a, a counselor who's in, in, involved in marital counseling. I've done that. I've had to mediate on behalf of the husband and the wife and circumstances, and I'm in the middle, as it were, you might see this as a legal expression uh, where a, a lawyer is, is laboring for you in a courtroom before a judge. There's hosts of different examples and illustrations from everyday life in which mediation is going on on a regular basis. It's probably happening and you don't really even know it. But in the Bible, it is an extremely central theme. Because without the mediator, the mediator you wouldn't have any hope. There's no possible way that you, on your own, can mediate the problem that exists between you and God. You don't have the means. You don't have the ability. There's nothing in you that would even warrant a conversation in mediation to resolve the war that exists between a holy God and a sinful person. Well, before I get ahead of myself, how should we how should we understand this term? How is it used in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5? Well, we can define it this way. Literally, it means, quote, basically a neutral and trusted person, one who works to remove disagreement. A mediator is a, a go-between or even a reconciler. It could be one who provides a guarantee of fulfillment of contracted obligation. When you think about it in those terms, you can quickly run pretty quickly, I suspect, to the quintessential example and expression of the Lord Jesus himself. I suspect this is one of the reasons why the Westminster Divines chose chapter 8 and titled it of Christ the Mediator. Not Christ the King, though he is that. Not Christ the Prophet, though he is that. Not Christ the Priest, though he is that. He, they chose Christ as mediator, the only mediator between God and man. We might illustrate this in human terms in the sense in which someone acts as the third party between two other parties. Sometimes a mediator is called to speak on behalf of two parties that are separated for one reason or another. This sometimes happens in marital, financial, or criminal disputes. But the word itself is not common in the Bible. However, where it is used is instructive to us to understand 
the essence of what this office is that Jesus Christ willingly entered as the God-man. And so we're just going to run through. I've got five. I know I said seven earlier, but you'll understand in a minute why it's this way. But anyway, first, the word shows itself in this interesting passage in Job chapter 9. Now, that word there in the Greek is the translation of the Hebrew word in Job 9. Job 9 Verses uh, 32 and uh, 33. You know the events of Job. As I'm turning here, it gives me a moment just to quickly remind you that Job did not live, well, for a while he did anyway, lived a pretty comfortable life. No one blameless, no one like him in all the land, blameless and just before God. And Well, what happens to him? Well, Satan didn't like it. So he goes into the courtroom of God and he arbitrates, he disputes with God. Oh, the only reason he's serving you is because you protect him, you give him all these nice things, and God's like, that's not the reason, but okay. If you, So Job is struck down by Satan, the permission granted by a sovereign God to do these things. And we're right in the middle of these events in Job chapter 9. Job here is lamenting. He is replying uh, to the words of Bildad, his supposed friend, who is supposedly trying to help him in some way, shape, or form. And we have these curious words in Job 9, in verses 32 through 33, for he is not a man, that is, God is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together There is no arbiter between us. This was what plagued him. There was no one to speak for him. He could not rationally, reasonably speak to a holy God that he's been serving all of his days. In the situation he finds himself, there's no one, no one, leaving him functionally hopeless and helpless. Now, in some sense, he's also looking forward to and highlighting for us that coming mediator who would indeed be able to arbitrate between a sinner or sinners and a holy God. In Galatians chapter 3 and verses 19 through 20, again, the Apostle Paul here uses the term that we translate as mediate or mediation or mediate or in Galatians uh, chapter 3 and verses 19 and 20. Now, this is a very complex chapter. I'm not going to try to give you the ins and outs of it. It's a very complex section of Galatians, but just the verses that are there cited, 19 and 20 of chapter 3. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. What Paul is talking about here is he's, he's reflecting on the old covenant economy. He's making a very tight argument And he's looking at the Old Testament economy, and he recognizes that the law of God was mediated, indeed mediated, uh, spoke first directly to Abraham, but then in the case of Moses, God used mediatorial means to communicate his will to the people. That is to say, then, therefore, that Moses is a type 
of Christ as mediator. Third, and again, I realize I'm not doing these passages the justice they probably deserve, but that's really not my point. Hebrews 8.6. In fact, you might be surprised to find that the rest of the references are in the book of Hebrews. Actually, it shouldn't be surprising because one of the emphasis or the goals of the writer to the Hebrews is to convince the Jews of his day not to return to the types and shadows of the Old Testament, but to lay hold of the substance, the mediator, of which all those other things in the Old Testament pointed to. Well, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, just one verse, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. The writer to the Hebrews demonstrates that the mediatorial work of Christ is far superior to the mediatorial work of others. It is because it is enacted on better promises, the promises that will go on into eternity. We're talking about the promises embedded in the new covenant that Christ is indeed the administrator and mediator of. Moses mediated the law, but Christ mediates on behalf of the people he came to save by offering up himself as a ransom for those he came to save. Moses can't do that. This is what makes the new covenant better. Moses cannot die for you. He was a type of mediator, but he could not die for the sins of people. Only Jesus could do that. Hebrews 9.15, one chapter over. Again, the writer to the Hebrews comes right back to the same theme in verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred yet redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Christ is identified as the one who mediates for those he came to save, receiving not only salvation which is what you have if Christ is your mediator this morning. But you have more than that. You have an eternal inheritance. I read that in Ephesians 1. You have this eternal inheritance that's been stored up for you by virtue of the work of this mediator, this God-man who stands between a holy God who is one and you, the sinner. Hebrews 12 and verses 18 through 24, a more lengthy section that we might not lose touch of the context. Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. Notice what he says. The mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word. And the blood of Abel. 
All these verses here it continued driving us forward, even with the Job text and landing here in Hebrews 12, it continues to argue for the, for the office of mediator that Jesus Christ and only he could actually fill with any security for those he came to save. Now earlier I said that the word is probably only used a handful of times in the Bible, but it's exemplified all over the place. I picked two, just to not keep you here all day long, which would be a nice treat, I realize. And Anyway, you're probably thinking, he had four teeth pulled out. He can't possibly preach for 50 minutes. Um, and I can't. But there are two places in the Bible in which this office of mediator is typified. Even though the word itself isn't necessarily linked in those cases to this office, the idea is plainly present. The first one, as you probably have guessed already where I'm going, you know, if you've sat under my ministry long enough, you know how I view Moses. Moses is arguably, I recognize it can be argued, I don't think very well, but it can be argued that Moses is the quintessential character in the Bible outside the Lord Jesus Christ. And Moses, as a type of prophet, was also indeed a type of Christ as mediator. One passage, I think, will convince you of this fact, if you have any doubt at all to this truth, and that is that passage that falls right after that horrible, horrific moments in time in which Israel, having been called out of Egypt, freed from their bondage, are making their way to Sinai. They get to Sinai, and Moses goes up in the mountain, and he's receiving the laws. He's receiving the instructions of the tabernacle, the very presence of God in their midst. He's getting all this information. And what happens? The people are rejoicing at the presence of God there at the bottom of the mountain, and that's not what they're doing. They get nervous and jerky, and they decide to make a golden calf. Doom. Idolatry at its highest form. Not, not only do they make this form an image, they call it God. They call it the God that freed them from Egypt. It's horrible. It couldn't get worse. We find this in Exodus 32. Not a banner day in the life of Israel. And as Moses is on the mountain there and he looks down uh, upon the plains of Sinai and he sees what his people that he's just redeemed is, are doing, he looks at Moses and he says, look, here's the deal. Get off this mountain because your people have profaned themselves. Not my people, interesting. Your people. God wants nothing to do with them. He's done. He's had enough of their murmuring and their complaining and their doubt and their disbelief. And now, to make matters worse, they commit this act of treason against God himself. And you would think, well, this is it. The Bible's going to end right here at the end of Exodus 32. But that's not what happens now, is it? Moses is not content with hearing the threatenings that God is going to abandon his people and start over with Moses. What does he do? He mediates. He stands as mediator 
In chapter 33, verses 12 through 23, he stands as mediator to plead with the offended party for the sake of the offenders. I mean, you've got to wonder just exactly what could he say on their behalf. Not much, because they've committed a wicked atrocity. So he doesn't appeal to that now, does he? He appeals to the character and attributes and nature of the God of heaven. Look what he says, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, say, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. That you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Earlier, God said to him, your people, Moses, not my people, your people. Moses says, no, 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 they're yours. You freed them from Egypt. You brought them out with your powerful hand. Verse 14, and he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses is arbitrating, looking for the perfect word, I'm not sure that was it. He is laboring as a lawyer before the just judge of heaven and earth. He is doing what the mediator to come has done for you. He is pleading the people's case, the sinner's case. He is placing himself at the mercy of God, and he pleads with him. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses goes on to ask to see his glory, and you know the story. This is just one example of the numerous examples that I could show you from the life of Moses as mediator, a type of mediator that highlights for us the very work and fulfillment that the Lord Jesus Christ entered into. That he pleads our case before the throne of grace. In each time in which you sin before the Father, he don't think he doesn't see that? And you seek forgiveness. Why is it that the Father gives it to you? Because of you? Oh no, no, no. It's because this greater Moses, if you will, is pleading your case. I died for that person right there. I died for that sin. No, no. I died for that sin. You see, Jesus is a greater mediator. Moses can't do that. He can't even say that. But Jesus can. There's a second type of mediator given to us in the Old Testament. And again, there's plenty of, uh, plenty of these examples, but... Perhaps the other one, which highlights more so the point of the Apostle Paul, is that one that was exemplified, typified in the Day of Atonement. The writer to the Hebrews picks up this very theme in chapter, um, chapter, fi- uh, chapter 5. Um, but you know the story of the Day of Atonement. One day a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, 
to offer sacrifice, atonement, on the mercy seat of God, the throne of God on earth. He was mediating through his labor, his work, on behalf of the people that they might be forgiven. There's only one difference, of course, between Aaron. Well, there's a lot of differences between Aaron and Jesus. (laughs) But one big one. Aaron had to do it for himself. If it was to be accepted at all, Aaron had to be covered by the blood of the Lamb before he could offer atonement for the people. Not so the mediator, the God-man who saves sinners. The writer to the Hebrews says as much, that he has no need to do that. No obligation whatsoever. Why? Because he is sinless. But he is the fulfillment of that mediatorial work of Aaron in the Old Testament. And so we have verses that show forth the the idea of an arbiter or a mediator. We have examples of these given in the Old Testament. But these things, all of them, these figures I've given you, just two, maybe it's a good lesson, parents, when you go home this afternoon to sit, sit around the table while you're eating lunch and talk about other mediators in the Bible. And how they, how they in their office functioned as a picture that Jesus Christ fulfills in totality. There's plenty of them. I just gave you two. These, of course, are there. These figures of old are there to serve a purpose, but not like the purpose given to the one appointed to be the only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. As one commentator states, he states it, the mediator must have links with both sides so as to identify with and maintain the interests of both. That is to say, simply put, in theological mumbo-jumbo lingo, he had to be both God and man. If he was to truly mediate between God and men, he had to be God and man. Paul, choosing that language very specifically, makes a strong, necessary theological point. He makes the point that this one mediator is the only one who can rescue you and me. Not Moses. Not Aaron. Not David. I'm not going to give them all away because then it will be no fun this afternoon. Only this one. That is to say, it answers the question then, who is the mediator? Paul begins with, again, another theologically charged statement. There is one God, he says. Now, it's very likely that Paul was thinking about Deuteronomy 6, the Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He draws our attention to the unity of the Godhead. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before distinguishing the functions of each, namely that of the Son. Note, there is one God. Throughout Christian history, this refrain, taken from Deuteronomy 6.4, is a hallmark of the Christian faith. We are, indeed, monotheistic. That means we believe in one God. Not three gods, one God. 
It is a hallmark of Orthodox Christian, the Orthodox Christian faith. To deny the unity of God, the one God, is to say, I'm not a Christian. There is one God, Paul says, who is holy and righteous. One God who gave the law. One God who demands from his creatures perfect righteousness in thought, word, and deed. If this God is one, and if he is the true God, he stands at one end of the spectrum of, what, of war that exists between himself and sinners. See how Paul's doing this? There's one God. Okay? That's one party. One God, three persons. There's the party. The offended party. And then he talks about the other side of it, the offending party. And so this one God stands at the end of the spectrum of war that exists between himself and sinner. This That creates the problem and indeed the need All in one simple statement. For instance, if there is one God, and we must acknowledge right now that we are not Him. I know we like to think we are, but we're not. The two parties in dispute is the one God and mankind, humanity, sinners, all. Second, there's one God and The scripture is quite plain about this. He is holy. There is no error in him. No shadow of turning. No darkness whatsoever. No unrighteousness to be found. Absolutely, infinitely righteous in every way. As such, we have a dispute to resolve because we are not holy and cannot live up to the terms established by a holy God. That was the problem of bulls and goats under the mediatorial office and labor of Moses. There's a dispute. The dispute lies between the one true God who is holy and sinners who are just third mere men. The Bible is quite clear about this point. We are all sinners. If you say you're not, you're lying. Let God be true and every man a liar. And fourth, it then highlights the fact that we, whether we acknowledge this or not, have a great need. We have a need for someone. Since I can't do it, I'm the offending party. And I'm not God. I cannot resolve the dispute. You can't resolve the dispute on your own. You have a need. For someone else to do that. To resolve this dispute that exists between a holy God and sinful men. And we're giving that resolu- we're given the resolution. In this, that God demonstrates His love towards His people. And what? He gave us the mediator. The solution to the problem that exists between a holy God who is one and sinners. That is to say, he's given us the only solution. Now look, I know we live in a pluralistic world where everybody is out there saying the same thing and parents, you need to guard your children against this nonsense that's out there and this pluralistic idea that as long as you're sincere, as long as you're good, as long as you don't you know, run over granny in the crosswalk, you're going to heaven. 
As long as you give enough money to charity, as long as you obey your parents the way you should, you're going to heaven. No. If you don't have this one mediator, you're going nowhere quickly. You must have the only mediator. As Paul makes it quite clear, mono, it's singular, it's this is him, Jesus Christ, the God-man. There's one God, and there's one mediator, not two, not ten, not fifty. One. Between God, this one God who is holy, and you and me, sinners. He's identified by Paul, unlike the atrocities of the Roman church, who think it's, there's multiple mediatorial work and labors. There's only one mediator between God and men. Now, Paul uses the plural here, of course, when he talks about men. He's talking about humanity, mankind. But he's not speaking in universalistic terms here. He's, some, he's not making a definitive statement that Christ mediates for every human being, no matter what, and every human being is then therefore saved. That's not his point. His point is to identify in general language, humanity are sinners, God is holy, and there must be a mediator or there's no hope. Period. So he identifies, he identifies this mediator, this one that came to resolve the dispute, the dispute of our sin, this war that exists, a lack of peace with God in a way that only he is able. How? What separates him from Moses or Aaron or David? Okay, I'll stop. You can get the rest this afternoon. First, he had to be God. Because only God can reconcile us to himself. We can't do it. We have a handicap, a big one. It's called sin. And so this mediator had to be God. And Paul makes it clear that he was, is God, the God-man. He had to be perfectly righteous and holy in his essence as God. He can be no other the Apostle John in his gospel, in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one mediator trumps all the other mediators before because he is indeed the God of heaven and earth. Second, that wasn't enough. He has to be also a man. So they can provide the link and therefore identify with those he seeks to bring peace to the one true authority that is God the Father. Thus Paul identifies him also as a man. That is to say, friends, he's not a mediator that is not like you. You know, he's got a head. God, in his essence, is a spirit. But Jesus Christ, the God-man, has a head and eyes and ears and hands and feet, a body. You can see him and you will see him. He's like you. He suffered like you do. Tempted in all ways that you are tempted. 
He did it as God. He did it as a man. Third, as God and man, he had to stand between sinners and his father as the only way to be reconciled to him. Now, either Paul was lying to us, and we've all drank the Kool-Aid, that there's only one mediator between God and men, or he wasn't. But you see, if he's lying, then so was Jesus. Perish the thought, right? John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. No man finds peace with the Father. No man is able to enter into the Father's presence. No one can accept through or by me. Putting it within the frame of this, 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 the emphasis of Christ as mediator, there is no other way to peace with God except through this one. Now, either Jesus was lying and he died for it and he was a madman, or he wasn't. You know, Paul was lying too then, and he was a madman and died for that as well, or they're telling the truth. The question for us this morning and the question for you as you sit there this morning is, have you come face to face with this mediator? Maybe you're trusting in your good looks. Maybe you're trusting in the success of your family and your family line. Maybe you're trusting in the fact that you have a great grasp of the Bible. Maybe you're trusting in a host of other things. I don't know what they are. But I can tell you this, if you're trusting in those as your mediator between a holy God and your sin, you're in trouble. The solution is not that at all. The solution is to place your trust in the only mediator between God and men. The God-man, the man, Christ Jesus. You will find hope nowhere else but there. Now, what is his purpose and function? What does this mediator do? I don't need to spend any, hardly any time on this because we've already covered these. Our confession breaks them down for us as prophet, priest, and king. He speaks God's truth to us. He ministers before the throne of God for us as priest and as king. He rules and defends us and the benefits of all of these things. It's not only to secure eternal salvation for you, but also to secure a mediator, the one, who this very minute is pleading your case. He first gives us the benefits of reconciliation. He reconciles the problem. By virtue of his death and his blood, he justly satisfies the demand that you and I be holy. Anybody here want to say they're holy? I will. Everybody's hand should be up. Positionally speaking, through this mediator, you are holy before God. And that's how he sees you. And that's how the war ended. Really, practically, we're working on that part, aren't we? But through this mediator, we've been reconciled. He has brought peace from chaos. That sin that separated you from the comfortable presence of God was laid on him. He who knew no sin became sin for you. Moses can't do that. 
Bulls and goats can't do that. Aaron can't do that. All the other mediatorial types in the Old Testament can't do that. But this one can and did. But it doesn't end there. I think one of the problems of westernized evangelicalism is that we see the gospel and the mediatorial work of Christ in the gospel is in the past tense. It's back there somewhere. Really? Mm -mm. No, no, you and I need this mediatorial work of Christ right now, this minute, today. You need his blood. You need it before the throne, often and regular. Not only are we reconciled, then therefore we are given hope in a hopeless world. Hope. People are looking for hope in all the wrong places. I sound like a country western song. You want hope? You put your trust in this mediator. Hope for what, Pastor Bill? Hope for today and for the things to come. Hope that you will be guaranteed assurance into the very presence of this mediator by virtue of everything that he has done for you. Hope and an understanding that he still labors for his church. He didn't quit serving you when he ascended to his father. He is in the Holy of Holies right this minute. He's not coming out of that room until he comes to get you. What's he doing in there? Well, he's in session with his father. My elders know what that means. He's praying for you. I wish I could remember the Robert Murray McShane quote. I always butcher it whenever I get to this point, and it's not on my notes because I preach extemporaneously, as you know, but it really wouldn't matter if I could hear Christ in the next room praying for me or not. It's irrelevant. He is. As mediator, he is mediating for me, interceding on my behalf. I mean, it's always comforting, isn't it, to know when a friend calls and you're about to get four wisdom teeth yanked out and someone writes you a little note, text message or otherwise, hey, I'm praying for you, uh, I've been there, um, I know what you're about to go through. It's comforting. It's really comforting to know that this mediator is praying for me right now. Doesn't matter what the situation is. His eye is always upon me, pleading with his father for my well-being. Moses can't do that. Aaron can't do that. Jesus Christ can and does. But he's not just praying for you. He's also persevering you. He gave you his spirit that you might persevere to the end. Come whatever happens, whatever circumstance, whatever trial, whatever issue, you know this mediator is the only one that can reconcile the problem, then you have a sure hope and confidence that you will make it across the finish line. You may zigzag a lot. You may go all around in circles a few times, or many. You might even wander off the reservation. 
for a moment or two. This mediator is pleading for you before his father. Other men can and often do mediate disputes between men. But only the Lord Jesus Christ can mediate the greatest dispute, the one between sinners and a holy God. There is no other option. There is no other substitute. If you have placed your hope in this mediator, you can see him today. You sit back and you, by faith, look and you see the glory of Christ as my mediator. then you have peace with God. I don't feel very peaceful. Forget your feelings. The Bible says you have peace with God. You have joy in the Holy Spirit. I don't always feel very joyful. Well, I'm right there with you. But you know, you still have it anyway. You have future hope in the world to come. Christ, our mediator, and all that He's done, secures and guarantees that his labors will not be hindered. They will accomplish your safe arrival into the heavenly rest. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for all that it shows us. Even in the lens, through the lens of the Old Testament, we see the person and work of Christ come forward. But we do thank you for him. Not Moses we don't want, not Aaron. We want Christ the only mediator between God and men. We thank you that he has accomplished the work. We thank you that he will never abandon that work, but carry us safely to the new heavens and the new earth. Be gracious to us. Help us to see again anew the glory of Christ as our mediator, we pray in his name.